We're talking about facing the Giants and these spies. Now, interestingly enough, they list all 12 names in the Bible, but we only know two of them, right? We know Caleb, we know Joshua. <laughs> the ones that came back with the report of the Lord, amen. <laughs> the ones who are dead in the desert, we don't know them because they blew it. They did not live up to their name or their tribe. Hmm. Today was that day. The 12 spies were sent out. You know, and we all face giants. You know, our giants may even be invisible. <laughs> We've talked about a lot so far, the time of the flood, the Nephilim. They were, came down, the giants, and afterwards, you know, they created a, a race of people. And then they were all destroyed, destroyed in the flood. And then these Canaanites came about with more giants. So there's little doubt that the Nephilim, the giants of the Old Testament, this mixture of fallen angels and, and women were the inspiration for the characters we see in mythology. The great heroes and villains were described as part of part God and part man or demigods. Evidently, after God cast them down to the earth, they spun a few good lies because if you read through mythology, mm -hmm. you get their version of God, their version of heaven, of themselves, and why they were cast down to earth. Right. Clever versions. The ancient Amorites were probably the forefathers of the Greeks and the Romans who passed down the stories that we know as mythology. In ancient Canaanite mythology, the morning star is personified as the god Atar. That's the planet Venus, by the way, mm -hmm. who attempted to occupy the throne of Baal, or Baal, as we call him in English. Finding he was unable to do so, descended and ruled the underworld. The Greek myth of Patheon, a personification of the planet Jupiter, follows a similar pattern. In fact, the Sumerians of Mesopotamia described an Amorite the earliest giants as one who does not bend his knees to cultivate the land, who eats raw meat, who has no house during his lifetime, and who is not buried after death. That's what's written of them. In Numbers 13, the spies reported that the land eats up its inhabitants. So clearly they saw a lot of unburied bodies. They saw a lot of death, maybe a plague. We don't, really, we don't even know what God had done ahead of them because they didn't go in. But something stood out. Now, it's believed that the land of Eden was the same land in dimensions as the promised land, which would mean goes over all the way to Iran and where modern Israel is part of Egypt and northern Africa. And the world was a little bit different back then. But the Garden of Eden, smaller part of Eden, was in the vicinity of ancient Jerusalem. It would seem like, based on scripture, when the fallen angels were cast down, they settled further up north of the garden in a land called Bashan. In Deuteronomy 3.13, Moses tells us the kingdom of Og, he's the king, with all Bashan was called the land of the giants. So you got throughout this whole land of Canaan a whole bunch of giants, and so these fallen angels had to be somewhere in the neighborhood. So when God cast the fallen angels out of heaven, they didn't have physical bodies, so they were continually in search of homes. And I mentioned when an evil spirit comes out of a person, goes through dry places, looks for a new place to rest, doesn't find me, says, I'm going to go home where I left. <laughs> in New Testament times, Bashan was called Decapolis, or Arabia. It was on a road in the region that Saul became Paul, and then after salvation, returned there to be alone with God for several years. Part of the Decapolis region sat across the Sea of Galilee. It's what you see from your hotel. If you've ever been to Israel, you stay in Tiberias, you look across the water, you're looking at Bashan, the land of the giants. In Mark 5, Jesus and his disciples arrived on that shore, encountered some of these ancient fallen ones, and they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. 
And we'd come out of the boat, immediately there, met him, out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. You always love that when you get out of the boat in a new place. <laughs> and always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. No one could bind him, not even with chains. Wow. So Jesus and the disciples got out of the boat, and immediately, so we're talking, uh, not after a while, they got out of the boat, and he's there. A demonized man who breaks every chain used on him is the welcoming party. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he worshipped him. So the demons in this man make him too strong to bind. They're, they're inside, but they're screaming on the outside and making him cut himself. So he's all bloody and scabby and dirty and smelly. And in an instant, these demons are screaming loudly and this poor tormented man. And he's charged at the visitors, ready to terrorize him like he terrorizes everybody else. He lives there in the graves. But when they got close to Jesus, suddenly their power drained away and their human host fell down at the feet of Jesus and worshiped him. Mm. And this beach has been there, so it's really small, with burial caves, and it's all downhill to the water. This all happens in seconds. It's a strange story. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. This is a demon talking. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Suddenly the demons are screaming for a different reason. They look into the eyes of their creator and suddenly they're going, oh, wow, that didn't work out like we thought. Mm. They're now the ones that are terrorized. Jesus says, come out. And the strong man of the demons says, I implore you by God that you do not torment me. Well, what a conversation. That's a strange reaction for a demon. Do not torment me. He's begging by God, meaning he thinks he has a right to bargain. And surprisingly, Jesus chats with him this morning. And he asked him, what is your name? And he answered saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. Also, he begged him earnestly that he would not send him out of the country. Fascinating conversation. Now, I'm sure I've read that passage hundreds of times through the years. And after spending so much time in Bashan, which I absolutely love, one of my favorite places in Israel, while considering its very demonic history, the story caused me to pause when I read it. It's been, uh, gosh, a few years now. Jesus asked the demon strongman what his name was. And I've noticed through the years, because I've been blessed to kind of grow up in churches where casting out demons and dealing with those things was a rather, you know, a common thing. It's not all the, every day, but it was something I got to be experienced with. So I noticed that through the years that often people doing deliverance ask demons their name. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing that it's probably based on the scripture. But I also discovered through the years that demons are liars. So talking to them is pretty pointless. So my question is this. Why did Jesus ask the question? Why did he say, what is your name? I want you to think about that. Because when I come back, we're going to talk about what I think is the answer to that question. 